Hi, everyone. Welcome back to On Point. Uh, growing in popularity, I might say, is New Zealand's uh, political podcast. And it's my absolute pleasure today to have distinguished professor Sir Peter Gluckman uh, on board. I, I hope to listeners Sir Peter doesn't need uh, any introduction. In fact, if I was to introduce him fully, we'd take up the entire time with the awards, the activities, the leadership he's provided. He's obviously been the uh, Prime Minister's Chief Scientist. He's now the Director of COI2, uh, which he might explain what that uh, means. It's an independent, non-partisan think tank uh, within the Auckland uh, University. Uh, his work uh, in, in neurology. Look, Sir Peter, it's phenomenal what you have done, and it's wonderful that you can join me here today. Happy to do so. Hey, why I drew you on is amongst many things, uh, you've recently published along with others uh, a report from uh, COITU, the Centre for Informed Futures, entitled Sustaining Aotearoa New Zealand as a Cohesive uh, Society. If people haven't seen the report, they really need to. I was fascinated uh, reading it. I thought it was well, well, well on point and well in time because actually issues of our democracy, how we protect our liberal democracy are front and, and centre and have been for years as media is changing different cultures and interplays. So I just wanted to sit down and have a chat about the report and your insights. And I wondered if, um, well, I might throw it over to you to say, what is social cohesion? Because you go straight into it in the report to try and describe the concept. Well, I think it's important to recognize that humans flourish when they live in societies. And if you think over the history of humankind from, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, we've always lived in groups which grew beyond our kin groups into eventually the large complex societies we now live in. And society's always been built around this concept that we are cohesive, we collaborate, to work together for our collective good. And we, in different ways through religion or through law, we effectively set up rules to make ourselves live cohesively and deal with people who don't follow those rules or don't live within our mores as people that are not part of our social group. Now, with the development of nations and particularly with the development of the liberal democratic model, we need to think about social cohesion in two dimensions. It's the relationship between the citizens who entrust decision-making to people such as yourself, to the institutions and of state, be them not just parliament, but also justice, the legal system, and so forth. But it's a reciprocal trust, because equally you have to have trust from the, those who govern to those who are governed to work together uh, for, if you like, the common good. But we're not a homogeneous society. We're made up particularly now, and particularly in New Zealand, of a large number of diverse uh, identities. And we even have our own multiple identities. So at times I'm a scientist, at other times I'm a Jew, at another time I'm a family man. So we, we all have different identities. And so there's, so if you think about the trust between government and those who are governed as a vertical dimension of trust, there's also the fact that we can work together. We may not agree with each other, but we can find and respect and collaborate 
in our societies between people with different identities for a common good. So a perfectly cohesive society would have high levels of trust in a vertical direction dimension. It also have a high level of trust and cooperativity between people who, by definition, will not have the same values, not have the same identities, uh, not have the uh, necessarily the same understandings, but can nevertheless and will not agree on everything, but they can find a way to live harmoniously and constructively in a society together. Now, that's the ideal, and clearly no modern society gets to that singular point. But New Zealand has been a relative to other, many other advanced countries, a relatively cohesive society. Uh, we in the Scandinavian countries, you might see, as being the examples of how a liberal democracy can work to be rather cohesive. And to be frank, that's been one of our greatest assets. I mean, we thrive because when we are cohesive. But it's never going to be perfect. And I think as we've come to understand our history better, we see there are people who have who feel that the society has not worked for them. We've also seen the polarizing effect of uh, of social media and and, and and misinformation and so forth, which pull people apart rather than pulling people together. And there are psychological mechanisms that will describe why people get pulled apart by, by, the, by my misinformation and social media. And so we can't take social cohesion for granted. We have to work at it. And the basis of our society is changing, not just because we've become more diverse, not just because we are confronting some of the errors and the disadvantages of our past, not just because we're facing rapid new technologies, but also because the expectations of people for higher qualities of life are there for everybody. So there's many different pressures on all of us. And I think one of the things that we are seeing, and I don't want to directly relate this to what's been going on in the last two weeks in Wellington or in front of the parliament in Wellington, but we are seeing pressures that come and start to pull us apart. And I think that whatever the motives, and they're very mixed and in some cases hard to understand, the motives of this group of people, what they fundamentally show is there are people that don't have high levels of trust in the elites of society, be them politicians, be them academics, be them scientists or other professionals. And I think however they've come to think that vaccinations are not a good thing or, or, or they're unsafe or whatever, or to take a particular view, that leads to a loss of trust in the, in the vertical direction. At the same time, because of the behaviours and attitudes and the polarising attitudes, it leads to loss of trust in the, in the horizontal direction. So there are warning signs here. We're much more cohesive than, say, the United States or probably many other so-called liberal democracies, and we should treasure it. But we shouldn't deny that there are difficulties, and I think all of us, whether it's the political class or the, or the intellectual class, if you like, need to think with 
and talk and be transparent about the issues in ways that promote democracy. If you go back to Plato, and of course neither of you or I have ever met him, but, but, <laughs> but we've, we've probably read him, we know that he said democracy relied on, on informed people, the, demo, the, the people that he would accept as being, if you like, the Democrats, the, the, the people who could vote, were those who were informed. Now, it was a very narrow definition of democracy to the definition of democracy we would now accept, which is a broad empowerment of people to be engaged in, the, in, in informing the representation that then makes decisions on our behalf. But it requires it being informed. And I think when the public is not informed, when the fact that by definition on any one matter, no, not everybody would agree, but there's been a sense that the discourse has been fair and of quality and issues have been discussed, then you have an informed electorate and then you have a robust democracy. Philip Kitcher, who's a great philosopher of uh, uh, philosopher of, of democracy, an American, used the term vulgar democracy to refer to, refer to a, a so-called democracy where the voters are not informed adequately or they're misinformed, I think we would now say, and where the ability to have the discourse on matters is suppressed. Yep. Now, People will have their own views of where different countries around the world are in relationship to that. And so I, so in my mind, transparency, honesty, a core and a core and allowing for civil debate is core to a robust democracy. I think we have a problem in New Zealand which is long standing that we have that our parliaments are relatively small there's not a long there's not a depth of select committee robustness that allows if you like the professional the select committees to work to really represent the different diverse views in prop in an open way because for, because of the way our select committee structure works in a unicameral parliamentary system with a strong parliamentary whip. And therefore, yep. which is what we have, it, it describes our system. And therefore, we have to work hard. Well, I think not just the politicians, but the media and everybody else to find ways to ensure inclusive conversation that nevertheless leads to decision-making. I mean, we all know in our, in our own personal societies, our families, our whanau, that we don't always agree with each other. But there's a discourse that leads to, uh, to resolution. If there's not a discourse, then it leads to a lot of upset. And I think so Parliament requires, and I think this is one of the relative weaknesses of our system, I'm not talking about the individuals in it, who I, I think, by and large, having worked with all the political parties in the House, are full of good people who want to do good things by the citizens of New Zealand. But the good things by the citizens of New Zealand require that, that 
the citizens feel that their perspectives have been discussed and heard, and then they can then when the system of representative democracy and deliberative democracy opines a decision that they might not agree with, they at least feel that the system has been robust. And if you look back at the history of, of Westminster parliaments, of course, that's the whole point of the first, second, third reading debates. The, the whole way was to try and force that, but was to in, in, encourage that. But as it's evolved over time, I think it's become more set-piece than, 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 than inside I, now. I, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I love the role, but I think you've been incredibly insightful. I'm not just saying that to, to flatter you. I think when I look at New Zealand's uh, expression of the Westminster democracy, it's highly structured uh, now, even of who gets to speak and speaking times. And when I compare it to my uh, Australian, Canadian, certainly UK colleagues, much more uh, fluid. And part of that is size. If you want to go a little bit rebellious in the, um, I don't know, the Tory or Labour Party in the UK, you can because you're one of hundreds. Here, exactly. it's it's more of a, a challenge. And I've often described, young people often ask me, Sir Peter, well, why do you do three readings? I, I say it's the theatre. It's the theatre of democracy. It gives that legitimacy um, and I think you're right as well. It's one of my worries, being part of the political class, that the legitimacy of what we do in Parliament is, is not as well understood anymore. People don't often feel they get to have their say, and they say that in media as well. They, they don't always feel they're being represented. They don't always want to win, but they want to be heard, and they're feeling that that's not coming across. And, you know, what I wrote recently, and I, I still think, that the Epidemic Response Committee, which was held, which was set up early in the pandemic, was the most brilliant illustration of what a good modern democracy could do. Because there you had hard decisions being having to be made in a hurry, but rather than the select committee process being controlled by whichever party was in power, it was in fact set up in live time on television with the chair of that committee being actually from the opposition, not from the governing power, with the interrogation of hard issues, like the issues I remember around what authority the police had, what were the authority the Director General of Health had. This was all around the time that we were closing the borders for the first time we were bringing in. I thought it was a brilliant expression of how you could give comfort to the population the hard issues, because let's face it, every decision a government's made around COVID is hard. Uh -huh. You know, there's always, there's no perfect solution here. There are rights, there's safety, there's economics, and most of all, it's the stewardship of the population, which after all is the most important thing that a government does, is to keep its population alive and safe. So there were many complications here in, in this. And I felt that obviously it, it came to an end because of the we ran into the electoral cycle and the, and the and the, the the healthy partisan games of partisan politics took over for a period of time. But I think if you think through now we're in a latter stage of the the pandemic where there's going to be lots of issues, not just for the next few weeks, but while this Omicron wave passes, but but. There's, 
there's echoes in many ways for at least five, if not ten years. And I, I'm, I, I'll come to that in a moment, perhaps. But I think, I think that we need to, to make sure as we go through times which will not be equally healthy or impactful for everybody. They will change for different people with very different circumstances. We need to see our political decision-making process kept as healthy as we can make it be. Well, I think you've illustrated what's a, a structural problem uh, in our parliament, and this goes across governments. doesn't matter if they're red or blue, so this is much higher level. It's but nothing to do with, It's nothing to do with... Yep. Prime Minister X, Prime Minister Y, Party X, Party Y. We've taken a different circumstance when you you guys were, were there. It would have been the same thing. It's oh, exactly right. And we do have a, a, a structural problem, arguably, that our parliament is ultimate. Well, whoever wins the most votes basically controls not only the executive but parliament, and that leads to, to structural problems. And the second and side, using the Epidemic Response Committee, I think – my impression of it, some New Zealanders tuned in, but a lot of others just knew it was there. And, and that gave them confidence. Correct. And that's my point. Not everybody wants to be part of the conversation, but they want to know there's been a conversation. And, I mean, the other side of this is also local government. I mean, we forget we have more than one layer of government in New Zealand. And I think that, that you know, many of the things that affect people's lives are caught somewhat between the decisions of local government and the decisions of central government. And they're not always aligned. I mean, and, and, and I mean, we, we have perhaps not thought through what really is the role of local government moving ahead. I was struck again through the pandemic. And I remember particularly one particular comment at the Epidemic Response Committee from the leader of a major social sector uh, NGO, that they were able to get on and make decisions at the periphery that really mattered. Mm. And I think that, and, and, and I think there is always in a small country this view of centralising, but I think a, a democracy works best when people feel they have empowerment and agency, and that yep. happens the more you devolve decision-making peripherally on the matters that could should be devolved peripherally. You're clearly not going to devolve peripherally a decision whether to withdraw a Russian ambassador, the Russian yeah. ambassador, or something like that. Yeah. But, well, they talk about that as the principle of subsidiarity. Well, some, some yeah. I would, yeah. that actually yeah. you, you take control of certain portions of your life and then it's delegated out, the, if you will, the but higher or the broader without, it becomes. Again, without getting into the detail... We're doing work with Auckland, with the Auckland Unlimited and the other Auckland City Council agencies on the long-term future of Auckland. And in our discussions and in our research around it, it's clear that one of the tensions which is unresolved is what decisions are really made for the long-term in Wellington about Auckland, what decisions are made in Auckland for the long-term, how they come together because they work on different cadences with different priorities. And that's not working for the benefit of New Zealand. At the end of the day, Auckland is New Zealand's arguably biggest asset, 40%, nearly 40% of its economy. And while these things are debated, even over trivial 
well, they may not be trivia, but over infrastructural issues. Uh, the tension is palpable, whereas in many countries it's much clearer what happens at the local government as opposed to the central government level. So I think there are, and then that's before we even come to the discussions which New Zealand must healthily have, which is what does indigenously inspired, to use my friend Charles Royale's term, uh, uh, Western democracy mean? How do we incorporate the fundamental principles of the treaty into a harmonious society moving ahead. These are hard discussions. Uh, I've been on discussion most of the morning uh, with over how, what would democracy mean in relationship to the treaty? It's not an easy discussion. Different people have oh, different. No. It's massively difficult because there's, there's going to be areas in discussion where we'll find commonality and growth, but uh, being blunt, there'll be ele elements where it's actually mutually exclusive, actually. Well, um, I, I, I see. I would say that's the challenge, Simon. How do we actually change that from being mutually exclusive to mutually inclusive? And there are conversations possible that would do that, but it requires a lot of reflection and not people putting deep pegs in the ground and, being, and not able to move. Now, well, it probably comes back to that trust and cohesion that you've you've talked about. And without phrasing it then a negative, because I think New Zealand's got um, a great foundation, but there are certainly challenges uh, coming in. And there do seem to be, well, trust does seem to be declining. And I wonder, ticking around information, reason, knowledge, we're seeing, and not just recent events, but the, the place of experts objective reason being questioned and undermined, which then makes conversation so very difficult because there's no commonality. People are, are, are splintering. I mean, A, did you see that in your report? And B, how do we how do we pull back people towards reasonable, objective discussions? That's the $64 trillion question. Because I thought you'd answer it. <laughs> because that's actually the question about how does the world live in a, in a rapidly changing technological age because yeah. there's always been misinformation. There's always been people in power elites who've manipulated information or filtered information to influence uh, their positioning. I mean, you go back to the first shamans, in, uh, you know, 25, 50,000 years ago. It was probably no different then. Uh, you know, that's... But what's happened is technology has done, it's made, made it so pervasive that you can get a meme out there so quickly. We know quite clearly for, that memes are designed to shock, uh, transmit far better than memes that are, are, are designed to, if you like, to, to just say it as it is. Um, we know that... Uh, I mean, just look at the main, our headlines in our papers. Look at our broadsheets, or they know a lot of their tabloid si size now. And you know, what are their front pages about? They're about generally about uh, events that are shocking, murders, uh, 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 crime. Uh, yes, uh, as COVID's taking the pages at the moment. But in general, we know that that stuff sells. And the marketeers understand that. And what more, the technologies now allow a lot of targeting. 
So there's a lot of micro-targeting of all sorts of information, particularly for people to get their entire news from one source. And so we have a real problem here that society has not really worked out how to live with very pervasive technologies which involve filtered information. Now, we talk about it, and when people talk about uh, is Facebook a publisher, is it not a publisher, et cetera, et cetera. We, how, how do you assign what's real news, what's, what's a fact, and, and, and so forth. It's really hard. And what we're seeing is in a post-Enlightenment age, this blurring of, of emotion and reason to a great extent that we've seen for a long time. Now, we all have emotions, we all have biases, we all look at anything through our, the, the framing of our biases. I mean, that's just part of being human. But one of the strengths of a democracy relies on a strong, independent, non-partisan fourth estate. And again, in the in the in the in the in the uh, post Facebook, post Twitter, internet age, that's that's been weakened greatly. And so that oh, we, absolutely. and so you know, one of the one you know, the fourth estate has a meaning, if you think about it in historical terms, it was there to keep the other side other estates honest. And and, and so you know, we have to rethink how we actually protect information, how we, and that I think comes back to it. I mean, there may be technological solutions, and I'm not a, a technological guru, so I, but I know there are people who think about that a lot, but people haven't found a way through it. Um, but the real solutions may well be what you've referred to in passing earlier in this in this discussion, and that is what are the skills that a young person, what anybody needs to have, but particularly going ahead in this rapidly changing digital technological age. Also, now the kids born now, well, well, many of them, most of them will be alive in the 22nd century. And we we need to think through what are the skills. You know, the education system is fundamentally built around a model of transferring facts to people. Yes, it's evolved, and I don't want to denigrate what many teachers are trying to do. But we need to think a lot more about what are the real skills that the education system and society needs to assure that the young people being born today will have in 20 years' time. And I think there's a consensus emerging It's skills of critical thinking, it's skills of empathy, and it's a broader range of literacies than just numeracy and reading and writing, civic literacy, it's fiscal literacy, it's a little bit of uh, social literacy and so forth. And now that's a hard discussion to have because, again, parents have a view from their own experience at school, which was in a different time, which was very different. It's well, even the interplay between the parents and the state, as in at what point does, if you will, the community or the state educate the child versus the parents, where are those roles? And, yeah, look, I think education's one of the critical ones. 
Um, love our educators. My wife's a teacher. Uh, a lot on the family. They do a great job. But imparting the ability to work through knowledge or to knowledge, actually, because people, I think, these days mistake information for knowledge. We've got tons of information, but we're not necessarily knowledgeable. I think we have to have a deep rethink what is the purpose of education uh, in a very different world where uh, where the social circumstances and the family arrangements have changed quite a lot. We need to think it through. For example, we're seeing, we've seen a two- to three-fold rise, depending on how you look at it, in the loss of mental well-being in young people in the last 15 to 20 years. Now, that's not due to disease. That's not that there's more people with psychological disease. It's clearly that the environment they live in and the way they've developed are now mismatched to have the psychological resilience to deal with the pressures which are much greater than they were for me when I was an adolescent. Some people still think I'm an adolescent, but that's beside the point. Uh, so, and clearly the education system is going to have to t- take a greater role in that. Already the education system is trying to help a lot in that area, but we need to think through a lot more, for example, about particularly the early years. What's the role of early childhood education? How do we make it actually equip the child when he reaches school able to learn? It's not that the child needs to be able to read Shakespeare when they leave uh, kindergarten or do calculus when they leave kindergarten, but it is that they need to have the social, critical thinking, executive function skills for them to thrive in in a structured learning environment. And those are the things that we need to think a lot more about and that's an area where Koitu is very active. Well, I think it's where it's it's desperately needed, actually, because I can say from my own side, um, and I, it's not alone to me, I hope, but you're so busy chasing your tail on whatever sort of the topic du jour is that you're not actually taking the, the time to think through the bigger and wider um, issues. You try, but actually those robust conversations, say, around education, what does education look like in the future, uh, are not often being had in without being controversial, we get caught up in very particular issues of the day. So, I don't know, New Zealand history curriculum or whether or not we should be doing financial literacy. I mean, it's good to have those, but they need to be situated in a much bigger, wider and deeper space. So so that's why Koitu was set up. It was actually from my nine years working in Wellington across the house uh, and the policy community, realising that there was a need for at least a centre, and I'm which is focused on long-term thinking on these issues without getting caught up in the partisan debate. At the end of the day, politicians make the decisions on behalf of society. That's that's what a democracy's how democracy works. But what we can do in Koi too, and what we're trying to do, is produce summaries of knowledge and reflection that will assist the policy community and the political community of all the political parties in thinking through what does the future hold? Because we have the privilege in Koi too of being able to look 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead where, in fact, the politicians and, to be fair, the policy community is largely hijacked by the realities of here and now. And so that, that, that and that's not critical of of the politicians, nor of the politicians. It's the reality we face. It's the reality. And so what is the role of a university? What's the role of a think tank? 
well, universities have broader roles, but a think tank primary role, particularly if you declare, as we have, our focus is nonpartisan, deep thinking on the long-term issues affecting New Zealand and New Zealanders, what our role is to help provide thought pieces and thought discourses to help ordinary citizens, as well as those in privileged positions in policy or politics. Uh, well, it's something I think New Zealand's lacked for a while. When I look at it again, not to always fall back to the UK, but I am always in admiration of how many think tanks, they're nonpartisan, partisan, but it's a whole, if you will, a sea of thought which you can bathe in. I'm probably pushing the analogy too far, but we, we don't generally have enough here. So I was thrilled when uh, Koitu was set up. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an important contribution we can make, and not everything we will say by definition will be right, and not everything we will say will necessarily be be, be agreed with. And, you know, we all look at any summary of information and reflection through our own personal identities and values. What we've worked hard to in Koi too is create mechanisms where we can actually get beyond individual views and get to a, a collective view of what are the big things we should be thinking about. And frankly, getting back to the start of our conversation, protecting our asset of social cohesion and recognising that it is fragile. Uh, you know, 20 years, you know, if we look at UK, for example, would we have thought it's as fragile as modern politics have shown it to be? Uh, probably not. Uh, and so I think we need to be honest. I mean, the first part of fixing a problem is to recognise the problem, to use the old cliche. And here I think it's easy to say, oh, we don't have a problem. Well, we don't have a deep problem yet, but we could have given that we have climate change, we have risk of future pandemics, we have increasingly diverse society, we have issues of growing economic inequality, we have uh, issues of intergenerational disadvantage, particularly for Maori people in New Zealand, we have issues of people who are still caught, understandably, with historical uh, grievances yet fully to be resolved. All of these are part of a healthy democracy if we discuss them. They're not oh, part of a democracy. They're not a healthy democracy if we don't discuss them. But we mustn't we quick too quickly fall into the activist polarized discourse rather than saying saying these are matters which are long term. They go beyond political cycles. Uh, they go beyond. Um, there are some core things we need to resolve. I mean, the Climate Change Commission is a good example of a track as of a step down that road. The Infrastructure Commission might be the same if it if it once it gets horsepower. But we need much more of this. And my focus is the social domain, because at the end of the day, you know, hey tangata, hey tangata, hey tangata. The people, the people, the people. And that's really what New Zealand is. It's five million people. Well, there was, because I'm conscious of our respective times, there was one fundamental question which we're heading to, well, well, I wanted to put to you. Well, actually, one's a statement, one's a question. The first is actually, and it's only my belief, New Zealanders, but probably across the Western world, in particular the liberal democratic world, takes democracy for granted. It didn't just appear. Um, it doesn't just exist because we had nice thoughts. It actually takes a lot of work 
uh, and effort and should be taken for granted. But the question I had as I read through your report was, it is how we, in a sense, bring people together, because at one level, cohesion requires, not we all think the same. I think listeners need to be really clear about social cohesion is not us all sort of in one demological way forward. But in some ways, modern New Zealand society is becoming fractured as we end up, and it's my term, identity politics, the stressing of your group, your tribe, your identity, who you are. There's a, a fracturing. You've talked about, and I would too, of the changing in family relationships and structures. So at one level, we're fracturing. We're actually individualizing people. And yet at the same time, we're saying, hey, we have to be a nation state, one group, not one thought, but one group. I mean, do you see we've got things pulling in well, opposite directions? That's the origin of this report, of course. <laughs> I mean, I come back to my first statement. We, we, we evolved to be social animals. We live in social groups. We're healthier in social groups. Our satisfaction comes from social groups. Whatever culture you come from, whatever religious belief you come from, when you look underneath it, the laws and mores of that culture or religion or, or, or state are about, or at least the democratic states, are about cooperativity, about protecting cooperativity between people. And our health, and there's good evidence about this, our, our mental health depends on that cooperativity. And so I think that, that without overstating it, we need to think about what the structures of New Zealand society and de democratic uh, discourse are like now, because they're different to what they were 50 years ago. And we need to think about not falling into the trap, which is there, and we're seeing this in some northern hemisphere country very much, that, that there's a slide towards autocracy. And I think mm. democracy in the minds of Plato, admittedly in a very different environment, which was about more about privilege, but certainly in the minds of modern liberal democ democratic thinkers, is about informed people with people with people who govern being transparent in relationship to them and engaging in the right discourse, civilly across areas that will, by definition, have disputed. Uh, views by different groups in society. Well, I think it's one of the reasons amongst many people end up going down the rabbit holes of crazy or conspiracy thinking is they've lost trust. They don't feel there's a, an avenue. So it's how we empower them. And it's interesting you've mentioned Plato uh, twice. He would certainly say you don't want autocracy, but on the flip side, you don't want a mob rule either sort of an anarchic structure. He says it is very much an informed populace. And I thought, uh, actually, as we wrap up, I might... You might have a comment or not on this quote. It actually comes from C.S. Lewis, and he's saying that uh, societies always try to avoid Aristotle's question of whether democratic behaviour uh, means the behaviour that democracies like or the behaviour that will preserve a democracy. For if they did, it could hardly fail to occur to them that these need not be the same. And um, I think it's one of the great tensions that democracies have, what they like versus what uh, preserves them. Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I mean, of course, Aristotle and Plato were talking about a very different view of democracy and who participated in it 
to what we do now. So we've got to be careful in the extrapolation too far. But yeah. in fact, the point that they, that Aristotle is making in that that quotation is precisely the point. You can have the image of dem democracy, but don't actually have uh, um, the uh, the reality of a true democracy. Uh, and you know, I think New Zealand's done proud across both political parties for a long time. Let's not squander it. And the environment is much harder because of the shorter news cycle, the internet, the uh, uh, you know, the, the social media, the misinformation, and so forth. And so we're asking a lot of society to find a way to do this well without falling into an autocracy or chaos. Which is exactly what we want to avoid. And as a politician myself, the red light goes off when I see people. Uh, well, disengaged, uh, going down uh, false alleys, those rabbit holes, and we are seeing, unfortunately, more and more of that distrust of our traditional institutions, be it from academics through to churches, whatever, all of that break together. That's a, a red a red light. And also you mentioned too, and I better wrap up in a moment, but the post-enlightenment, which is something that gets me to where reason is now trumped by emotion, ideology over, if you will, tradition, and you're going, okay, we need to take a pause here. How do we re-engage people into their community that they feel heard? I mean, let's be honest. Reason will always be uh, not over uh, trumped by emotion, but we always emotion is part of being a human. Uh, so we shouldn't, and I'm the last one to argue that science, for example, has all the answers. It doesn't. There are many things that we have to, based on very different concepts, values, and so forth. But we are at great peril, great, great peril, if we don't accept what is empirically true or empirically known. I'm not sure about the word truth, but I think we, when we dispute the basic facts, a vaccine uh, reduces the risk of death or dying from, from the virus, when we dispute that basic fact, we're in real trouble. And that would take us down a whole other line, but I, I agree with you. In Empiricism, without, with this, without nuance, is really important. We need some basic point to begin the, the dialogue. But on that, we better uh, close up. I am so grateful, Sir Peter, you've made uh, your time. Can I encourage listeners to look up the work uh, that Sir Peter and others are doing through Koitu to look up uh, this report on sustaining New Zealand as a cohesive uh, society. Look, Sir Peter, grateful for all the work and contribution you make to New Zealand. Just thrilled that you had the time to join us on On Point today. My pleasure, Simon. Please look at the readers. The website is www.informedfutures.org. I will make sure to put that into our links as well and encourage you for people to engage because that's how we're going to move this country, this great country forward. All the best, Sir Peter. Thank you. Thank you.